Okay, the kiddos can go to Children's Church, and if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Matthew chapter 24, and kind of like last week, we'll be bouncing around a little bit, so you can get your fingers ready or just listen, okay? Deep into the Olivet Discourse this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we approach your word, so we ask for you by your spirit to enlighten our minds and our hearts. May we grasp and receive what Christ is presenting to us. The very words he told his disciples. We just pray that you'd help us to understand them in his name. Amen. So, in that little book, 1 John in the New Testament, John the Apostle um, admonishes us. He says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So he's talking about the ways of the world. He's not really talking about planet Earth so much, but actually all of it is passing away. And that's good because something much better is coming. When he says the one who does the will of God lives forever, we know that God's people will outlast the entire created order as we know it. And then they will enjoy something better that is coming. So the world is passing away. A good good God will not let sin go on forever, just go on and on. And it feels like that to us sometimes, like how long is this tragic thing called earth and the things going on in our world going to go on. It feels endless, and it, but it, it just seems long because we're short-lived creatures and it seems like it's going on forever, but it isn't long to God. And he has very definite purposes for delaying his bringing it all to a conclusion, his great judgments and the renewal of his creation, which the Bible talks about so much. For one thing, he's saving millions and millions of people all over the world during all of these years. He's... Uh, he's bringing them in. These are the ones who will live forever with him. All who are connected to God through Christ by faith are going to be living forever with him. So he's gathering people from everywhere. He's also using wretched humanity uh, to teach a very valuable lesson to any beings that might be observing what happens on planet earth, like the angel, angelic order and all of that. What happens when creatures turn away from the creator? A big mess, a really big mess. Things go bad, really bad, really quickly. And when we make our own way, it never works out. So you have to be rightly related to God for things to work out. So all of human history is sort of a, an object lesson in people going their own way. And they go a lot of different ways, but not his way. They'll try this way, they'll try that way, they'll come up with this scheme, with this religion, with this philosophy, with this political system, all these different things, and they never work. Because human corruption, as we move away from God, destroys everything we try to do. So we've been looking at Matthew 24, and this is the last of six discourse sections in the Gospel of Matthew's talks by Jesus. And this one explains quite a bit about the end of the age, and you could call it the end of the world. Uh, uh, at least the world as we know it, and the dawning of the age of the Messiah, which is coming. So in the first 14 verses, we looked mostly in the previous weeks at uh, what Jesus called the beginning of birth pangs. 
So all of creation is going to be in this turmoil, the pains of uh, the new birth that, of a new world that is coming. So those are things like wars and famines and earthquakes, he says. Those are the normal things that happen throughout history, but they're going to intensify towards the end, and they're going to pre- precede terrible judgments that God is going to bring upon the earth. And persecution will be common. If you look at verse 9 of chapter 24, he says, Then they will deliver you to tribulation, will kill you, You will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Love is already growing cold, but uh, when times get hard and people get desperate, they become people become much more comfortable with the suffering of other people as long as they're getting their little share of whatever they're trying to grasp. So it'll be more like that um, in the future, in what's coming, than it has ever been because it's going to be worse than it's ever been. So the next portion, starting in verse 15, is about those last few years before Messiah actually comes, and that's what we talked about last week. So Jesus tells those in Judea to flee, he says, flee to the mountains, when they see this thing called the abomination of desolation, and we talked all about that last week, some idolatrous image of um, this anti-Christ figure, what the book of Revelation calls the beast, this world ruler, and we talked about that in Daniel and Zechariah and all these different places. And Jesus, in verse 21, speaks of the, a great tribulation, he says, as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. There's been some pretty big tribulations through the world. I mean, uh, some of you are old enough to actually live in World War II, and uh, th- those things, uh, that's a big tribulation. I mean, how many hundreds of millions of people died? But this will be much worse, he says. Things will be so horrible because God will withdraw, you know that God actually restrains people's sin? Just by his common grace and the spirit in the world, even unbelievers, he restrains their sin. But when he pulls back and people are going to act the way they want to. That's what Jesus is talking about, people's love growing cold. Even natural affection will um, shrink away. And, and, uh, and then God's going to pour out these cataclysmic judgments on this sinful world before it's reborn. And so those birth pangs are going to get very sharp right near the end, just like real birth pangs do. So last week we, we dabbled a bit in Revelation chapter 16 where these judgments are described in great detail, these judgments that God brings on the world. Loathsome, malignant sores on mankind, the water is turned to blood, all of the life in the sea starts dying, the sun scorching men with fierce heat, and amazingly and significantly an angel speaks when those things start coming upon the earth And uh, in Revelation chapter 16, verse 5, this angel starts praising God. And he says, righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. And then the angel says, they deserve it. They deserve it. That's exactly it. It's Awful as those judgments are, they are proportionate and just according to the behavior of humankind. God can be amazingly merciful, abounding in mercy and loving kindness, but he's never unjust. Whatever he does is just. 
So they deserve it. And then John says in Revelation 16, 7, and I heard the altar, so the angel cries that out, and then the altar in like the heavenly um, sanctuary cries out, words come from it. Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. That's pretty interesting. They deserve it. The judgments that come are true and righteous. Have you noticed when people talk about the woes and sufferings of mankind in the world, they say all kinds of things. Mostly people kind of lament the unfairness of it all. It's so unfair, all the, the darkness. That's exactly what I was mentioning earlier. David Glenter, um, you know, he actually is lamenting the mess of the world and the wickedness of humankind, and he questions God, but um, it's unfair, you know? Where is God? That's the question people ask. And people often portray God as either weak or unloving or insufficiently loving. It's his fault somehow that all these terrible things are in the world. And a man like David Glinder would say, well, he must not be there because it's such a mess. Rarely, very rarely, do I ever hear people say or even weigh the possibility of they deserve it. But that's the biblical position. You know, in Luke 13, when Jesus talked about a, a tower collapsing and killing a bunch of people, we would say innocent people. When he talked about Pontius Pilate kind of going wild a little bit and sending the soldiers into the street and they killed a lot of people, just people just in the way. Um, and he said, do you think those people were worse sinners than everybody else? And he said, I tell you no. But he said, unless you repent, the same thing's gonna happen to you. The implication of that, of course, is you deserve it. You deserve it. So that's how bad sin is in the eyes of God. That's the biblical position. Pretty early on in human history, God flooded the entire world and only eight people survived. That's how he feels about it. Why did he do that? Well, Genesis 6-5 says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So that's what happened in the early years when men walked away from God and did their own thing. And after all this time since then, the world's gonna end with the, on the same principles, just not with water. So it's only right and good that God destroy a world of moral corruption, that's just. You know, Psalm five says, you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, no evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes, you hate all who do iniquity, you destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. So God hates evil in all of its forms because he's good. He's not just good, he's good right through, you know. The Bible says he is light and in him there is no darkness at all. He's perfectly good. We can't really experientially imagine that much goodness. But in the, just the way you, even as a very flawed, sinful person, hates evil, God hates it from a position of absolute moral perfection and purity. So his hatred for it is more pure, if you will. It's a more pure hatred for evil. And we have all sorts of darkness in us, but he is pure goodness. So in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus is relating to us something really wonderful, actually. It's the victory of good over evil. The entrance of the kingdom of God into this wicked world, light dispelling the darkness, that's what's coming. 
So last time we, we mentioned that a, a false Christ comes to have great power in the world right before the end, and he's often called the Antichrist, and he claims to be a savior, but he is evil. He's evil through and through. And he seems like a defender of Israel, but he turns on them. And it, the Bible says he defiles the temple that's in Jerusalem. And he goes in there and he declares himself to be God. And there's an image of him there that boasts, it speaks great things. But the Bible says his time is short. And his career is pretty quickly put to, the, to an end. Now last week we talked in Daniel and things like that. I want to read you something from Daniel chapter 11. I know I'm bouncing around, just hang with me. There's a lot of detail in the Bible about the Antichrist at the end, but in Daniel chapter 11, he's in North Africa, like um, that area, Egypt, Sudan kind of area. And in verse 44 of Daniel 11, it says, Rumors from the east and the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. So he comes to a bad end, and Daniel doesn't say how, but other texts do. His armies will camp between the seas, which is the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea, and, and he's pitching his tents towards the holy city, which is Jerusalem. And that's when God will personally intervene into human history to bring about the conclusion of the end. He's already been judging the world with all these things, but he's going to show up now. Christ is going to come. And you can read about that in Zechariah chapter 12 through 14 or Joel chapter 3 but the description I want to read for you about that right now is from Revelation chapter 19 so this is what happens after this figure comes to attack Israel he does attack Israel He's, um, uh, Zechariah describes him attacking the city of Jerusalem that's why Jesus is saying to flee to the mountains when you see this guy doing his thing Revelation 19.11 though says I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no man knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. There's an act in verse for you. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, the small and the great. And I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth, and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse, and against his army. And the beast was seized... And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. That's pretty dramatic. So Jesus comes once, meek and mild, gentle, to bear our sins. When he returns, it's very much not like that. He is a glorious conqueror. And he crushes the world powers. And God intervenes directly 
on behalf of his people, Israel. So let's look at Matthew 24 now and, and to see that good in that Christ brings to his covenant people, Israel. So the Olivet Discourse, this part we're looking at, doesn't describe in detail that great battle that I just described to you and is described in Zechariah and uh, Revelation 19 there. But I, I think there's an allusion to it because we just talked about the birds of the air coming and feasting and all of these uh, slain uh, armies. And in uh, Matthew 24, 28, Jesus ends that section we talked about last week, wherever the corpse is, there will the vultures gather. Now that could just be an image to describe that, but when you see these signs, that means something and you're gonna, you can learn from what I'm saying. But it might be an allusion also to this grand destruction of all of these armies talked about in Revelation. But the next verse begins to move really quickly towards the very, very, very end. And that same thing we just read about in Revelation 19. Immediately, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And if you read uh, Luke's version of the, gospel, of the Olivet Discourse in his gospel, uh, he gives us even more about this. He says, there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and expectation of things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So Revelation's really concentrating on what happens right there when Jesus comes back to Israel. Um, Luke, uh, Jesus' words in Luke is really describing the global uh, response to these signs that they're seeing happening everywhere, the heavens being shaken and the the sea acting completely differently. And it, so everybody's going to see this and, and be shaken, it says, to the core. Everyone's going to see these fantastic things occurring in the heavens, what looks like the stars falling down. And Jesus is using this language. It's, he's not making up this language. It's straight out of the prophets in the Old Testament. Very familiar. Any Jew reading this or hearing the, the Olivet Discourse from Jesus would say, oh, yes, uh, I remember that. So the signs uh, in the sky sound really terrifying, but... They're connected in the Old Testament to wonderful things because even though this great judgment is coming, they are birth pangs to bring forth a glorious, restored, exalted nation of Israel. That's what it leads to. So here's an example from Joel, Old Testament, chapter 2, verse 28. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters will prophesy and your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on, a ma- even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon into blood. Does that sound familiar? Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So there's all these terrifying signs, but deliverance and escape are really the themes associated with these things for God's people. And in Matthew 24, 30, we can see why it's such a good thing. It says, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Notice the use of the word mourn. 
The mourning described here is when Christ actually returns. Who is mourning and why are they mourning? Now, when you come to verse 30, Bible scholars differ about this in certain ways. I'm going to show you two ways to look at this. My Bible, I have a New American Standard Bible, it says, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. That sounds like kind of everybody in the world. In that case, the mourning might be because Christ the judge has arrived and it's a fearful thing because he's bringing judgment onto the world. But other scholars believe that these are the tribes of Israel. So the word earth, now this is a, this is a translation issue, you know when you go from one language to another you're trying to get it exactly the same. When you're translating this word earth, it could be, it's also translated in many contexts as land. And we use the same thing in English too. We don't call, because we think planetary wise nowadays, we use earth mainly about our planet. But in the old days, you could pick up a hand of earth, right? This is earth. And this is my earth. It's your land. And so it's the same kind of thing in Hebrew. You can go either way. And um, the way they describe these kind of things. Of course, this is Greek, but it's using Hebrew ideas here. So, um... It could be translated just land. And then it would read all the tribes of the land, if you translate it that way. In verse 30, it doesn't say nations. The word ethne, nations, does not appear in that text. If you have an NIV, it does say nations. But it should say tribes, because that's the actual word. I hate it. The NIV likes to interpret things for you. Um, it should, it should translate it directly, the word tribes, like most translations do. But um, So if, if it is translated tribes, and if you translate that word earth as land, it would be all the tribes of the land. That would point more to Israel being the focus here. So it could be the tribes of the whole earth in their diversity. That's one opinion about that. Or it could be the tribes of Israel, and who knows what's right. But if it is Israel, then the mourning is a good thing. And if you take that idea of Israel mourning and come back into the Old Testament, that kind of leaves you, at least for me, it kind of makes me lean on the side that it's talking about Israel, because their mourning is not a fearful mourning, it's a healthy mourning, it's a good mourning, it's a mourning of repentance. So why would Israel mourn when Jesus comes? Because of their unbelief for centuries, because of their regret for having forsaken the Messiah so long ago, for their ancestors having put him to death, um, all of that. And only now, seeing him for who he is and embracing him for who he is, and there's grief in that, even though it's a joyous thing, because, wow, we missed it all this time, you know. It can be fairly argued here, then, that this is global, universal, and it can also... In fact, um, Revelation 1.7 uses the word tribes seemingly in a global way, but that also has interesting ties back to Israel, too. So it may well be Jesus intends us to think about the whole earth here, but... It's also very likely, even if that's true, the focus is on Israel, because the context of Matthew 24 is very much about Israel and Jerusalem. So if we narrow the focus even from the global picture down to that, Israel's mourning is, is a positive. It's a repentive mourning. So the use of the word mourn in verse 24 in the Old Testament has a very specific connection. Now, I haven't sent you... Um, I've quoted a lot of different places, but I haven't sent you turning there. But you might want to turn back to Zechariah. It's right near the end of the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 12. You can just listen if you want, but you can turn there. That's one of the last prophecies in the Old Testament. And it addresses directly 
this future moment in time that Jesus is talking about. The end of the great tribulation and the return of Christ at the right moment to save Israel from this monster beast guy and all of his armies that are um, doing horrible things to her. So in Zechariah chapter 12, God is speaking, and listen really carefully to what he says. This is, this is sort of the key here today. Zechariah 12, 9. In that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So there again, his zeal for his holy mountain and the holy city, which runs all through the Old Testament. I will pour out on the house of David David, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. See, that's that's a good weeping. In that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem. Like the mourning of Hadadramon in the plain of Megiddo, the land will mourn, every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by itself and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. That's so Hebrew, all that repetition there. Repetition in classic ancient Hebrew was a way to give emphasis. Repetition meant uh, pay attention. That's what he's saying. You can't help but be drawn into that. You could go, oh my gosh. Or you could say, wow, look at that. He's really focusing our minds here on everybody, on these certain groups of people and who they are. And that's what you're supposed to get out of it. So all this mourning, what are they mourning over? What does it say? They will look on me whom they have pierced. That's God speaking. Well, when did they pierce God? We just sang about it today. On the cross, right? When was God pierced? And Jesus, still bearing the marks of that piercing, will appear at the head of an army of angelic beings and maybe the risen saints, and the Jews are going to believe they're going to believe. They're not mourning for themselves. That's, what the, that's why the key thing here, it doesn't say, oh, they were grieving their destruction. Or, no, it's they're mourning for him. They're mourning over him. That's faith. Genuine faith and repentance will come because why? God pours out on them a spirit of grace and supplication. He awakens them. That's really how any of us believe the Spirit has to awaken our hearts. Just like Lydia in the book of Acts, the Lord opened her heart to believe. That's exactly the same dynamic that's going on here. The Spirit of grace and supplication is the awakening work of the Spirit of God. And it's freely given and sovereignly bestowed from above. And the awakened heart makes an appeal to God. That's what supplication is. Ah, we see now. We regret, we mourn our unbelief, and now we see, and we come, we appeal to God, and that includes this mourning. So this mourning is very much the kind of mourning that Jesus said the blessed have in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember way back then when we were in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are those who mourn, right? For they shall be comforted. Does that mean mourning anything? Does that mean just mourning anything? No. 
It isn't just mourning, period, that he talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. He's not just mourning anything. Oh, I broke my bottle of vodka. I'm, I'm so sad. It's, oh, well, the Lord says you'll be comforted. That's not what it's about. My turtle died. I'm, I'm so upset. That's not, you know, that, that, that he might comfort you in that, but that's not what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a mourning of sin. Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Those who have poverty of spirit. And then after that, blessed are those who mourn. So the mourning is over the poverty of spirit that we have. So if we're mourning our sin, we're mourning our failure to honor God, proud human beings mourn when they begin to see their shortcomings and start to see their sin the way God sees their sin. They mourn over that. That's a good mourning. Mourning born of faith is a a blessing. It's a great blessing. It's actually the mark of God's grace in your heart that he's pouring out the spirit of supplication and grace. Mourning over our true offenses against God's holy standards, that's not bad, that's good. That's really good. That's the path that leads us from sin to a gracious, merciful, redeeming God. It's a good morning. On God's end, he's pouring out this grace. On the human end, we're experiencing that gracious outpouring by grieving our sinfulness and mourning. And then the flowering of humility and faith starts to come with that mourning. So my, you know, my mind often drifts back to one of my favorite passages, Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, where, where it says, Thus says the high and exalted one, who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place. And also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Love that verse. God dwells in the vast expanses of heaven and in the heart of the one who mourns, the contrite, the lowly one. Why does he dwell with the contrite and lowly of spirit? To chide us? You look how bad you are. No. To revive us, that verse says. To make us live again. That's what revive means. Vive, vive, live. Revive means new life. New life begins in the heart, but ultimately it will lead us to a whole new existence, either in death or when Christ returns. I mean, a sinless, rich, full Holy life, eternal life. We possess it now, but it'll flower into perfection when we see him. But for that generation Zechariah is talking to, and which Jesus is speaking about in Matthew 24, this giving of new hearts to so many of God's people, Israel, is immediately followed by this dramatic rescue and the establishment of Jesus personal rule upon the earth, Messiah's kingdom. So they will believe, they will mourn, they will see the end of the age and the dawning of the new world. That's a special generation of people. Wouldn't it be fun to be one of those people? To actually see it? Nature will be renewed, the curse will be removed, sin will be vanquished, sinners who won't repent will be cast out of it. And those who believe are gathered to find their place in his kingdom. And that's what verse 31 in Matthew 24 is all about. And we'll kind of wrap it up with this. But verse 31, he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet 
And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. So now here again, we're going back to this same kind of issue that we had in verse 30. Scholars disagree about the elect in this verse. Are they all the believers? Or are these the Jews regathered, as is promised so many times in the Old Testament, regathered to the Holy Land from all over the world and resettled in Christ's kingdom to enjoy their covenant blessings that they've been promised all the time. So the word elect usually is a broad term designating all who are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, as Paul says. But it could be more narrowly defined according to the context. But anyway, whatever it is, it's a dramatic reordering of events and people and places and nature itself. And the trumpet is mentioned in verse 31. That's very reminiscent of the trumpet that used to call all the Jews to the assembly in the days of Moses when they had the tabernacle there. And Jesus says this assembly at the end of the, at the, end of the age, the angels are involved. They're actually escorting people back to Israel, back to Christ. They'll have angelic escorts to the Holy Land, which is being transformed by the Messiah. In the book of Micah, chapter 4, verse 6, it says of the end of the th- end of all things it says in that day i will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts even those whom i have afflicted i will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation and the lord will reign over them in mount zion from now on and forever that's christ coming back to his holy city that's going to happen so as big of a mess as the world is god is going to set all things right There will be a world where the will of God will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what's coming. Remember now, this is a fallen world. We don't have any guarantees in this world. That's the world we inhabit. It's a mess. It is a mess. Everything is flawed, sometimes horribly flawed, even us, right? Most people in this mess live, at least in our culture, live for Peace and prosperity, that's what they want. Health and uh, peace of mind. And they seek it because these things feel good and these things aren't all that common in many places and many things are arrayed against these things being in our lives, especially our own um, nature, human nature. So, and peace and comfort, those are good things, the things everybody wants. Those are things that are actually promised to Israel in the kingdom of Messiah. But you know what? As a Christian, we're not actually here for that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. If you can get it, great, but that's not why you're here, to seek peace and comfort. Sometimes people use the Lord as just a means to that because that's really what they're after. What are we here for? Well, getting along with life just really isn't our primary task. Our primary task is to represent the kingdom of God on this earth to other people. It's how we conduct ourselves now. We are specifically told in the New Testament to regard ourselves as strangers and aliens in this world. You mean I'm an alien? Yes. A stranger. You don't belong here. You belong to a kingdom that's coming. That's where your citizenship is. It's really not here. So we represent a coming kingdom. This this isn't our settled place. And if we put all of our energy into making this our settled place, we'll probably end up kind of disappointed because things are always going to go wrong. But if our settled place is to be lights for Christ in a dark world, to be representatives of his kingdom, ambassadors, Paul calls us in 2 Corinthians, so um, then 
that then we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. And if peace comes with that, great, but you'd have no idea what God's going to ordain for your life in this world. It might be a good idea to go back and read the Sermon on the Mount this week and kind of read it in the light of this coming kingdom. What, what does it tell a follower of Jesus to do today as a kingdom citizen? It says you should be a peacemaker, right? You should be making peace between people and bringing people into a relationship with God to make peace between them. You should be true to your word. You should love your enemies. You should be secretly generous. Your prayers should be God-centered prayers. You should judge people with humility and love. You should forgive in exactly the way you want God to forgive you. You should not be anxious about things, but trust God and His love for you. Because a believer lives by trust. That's how we endure. That's also how we fulfill what God has for us to do. We have to endure the world's imperfections and view our troubles, the troubles in our lives, as opportunities to show the kingdom. That's really what it's all about. Light in the darkness. And in the end, that's the only thing that matters. This world is passing away and also its lusts. So don't cling to it too tightly. And when we see in these many texts God's power and zeal to right this errant world that we live in, don't lose sight of his love for you as an individual. You've got to trust him. Paul asked some pretty wonderful questions in Romans chapter 8, 31 regarding God's calling us to be his people. Let me just share some of those. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Trust him, obey him, serve him, and do it with joy because it's going to be worth it. That's why. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it's so easy for us to look at today and forget the big picture. Your will, Father, is unfolding exactly as you have planned and you are doing your great work of redemption, of restoration. Help us to see our years and our lives in the light of what you're doing. Let us be faithful to our calling in that great work that you're doing. You have not chosen us for mere peace of mind and prosperity, but for service. So point us to that service and let us find our peace in your purposes and trust in the eternal joy of your plan for eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.